The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. On last week's show, we presented part one of my version of the legend of the wandering Jew, the story of a man who was condemned to live until Jesus' return. It was in graduate school some 30 years ago that I encountered the legend of the wandering Jew and decided to tackle turning it into an audio production as a school project. Anyway, today's show presents part two of the three-part story. If you missed last week's show, I'd suggest you go to our past shows button and begin uh, by listening to part one. The 30-year-old cassette is not in perfect condition, uh, and uh, you'll notice a few glitches as we go along. Unfortunately, a written version for rereading no longer exists, so let your mind fill in the occasional lost word. A reminder, my fictional first-person rendering of the story of the Wandering Jew began in a present time of 1989, and looking forward to an end times of or at or about the millennium. Anyway... Let's begin part two of The Wandering Jew. My journey to Egypt was overland, along a well-traveled trade route, and not difficult or dangerous. Alexandria quickly proved to be the center of scholarship I'd heard. The contents of the temple library and the museum library were incredible, a collection of nearly half a million different scrolls. Many had been brought from Pergamum by Mark Antony as gift to Cleopatra nearly a hundred years before. A great university had grown around the museum, and scholars were there from all over the world. I soon realized that even with time on my side, my limited capacity to translate and make sense of this wealth of information was hopelessly overwhelmed. For a long time I floundered around, hitting on relevant writings only by chance. Then I came to read the Timaeus, and Plato's description of the sinking of Atlantis. In it, an Egyptian priest tells the Athenian, Solon, there have been and will be again many destructions of mankind arising out of many causes. The greatest have been brought about by the agencies of fire and water, and other lesser ones by innumerable other causes. There is a story which even you have preserved, that once upon a time Phaeton, the son of Helios, having yoked the steeds of his father's chariot, because he was not able to drive them in the path of his father, burned up all that was upon the earth, and was himself destroyed by a thunderbolt. Now this has the form of a myth, but really signifies a declination of the bodies moving in the heavens around the earth, and a great conflagration of things upon the earth which recur after long intervals. The priest then went on to describe what I took to be Noah's flood, and what it had done to Atlantis. My imagination was fired by this account of an end of the world, and since I had the library's ancient texts available to me, I decided to concentrate on looking for references to civilizations before the flood. This reduced considerably the amount of materials that were relevant to me. In fact, at first there was little that I could find on my own. But I managed to befriend a knowledgeable elder in the temple library, leading him on with details of Christ's life that he hadn't heard before. He, in turn, showed me documents and charts of such antiquity that ordinarily they were not made available to any but the most advanced of scholars. I must admit that even the best minds of the times could learn little from some of those manuscripts, written as some of them were in lost languages. The most readily translatable of these texts were in Sanskrit, for there were a number of Sanskrit scholars in residence at the university. 
There were treatises on the nature of matter. The Yotish, now almost 6,000 years old, echoed today's scientific information on the Earth's place in the universe, the law of gravity, the kinetic nature of energy, and the theory of cosmic rays. It even dealt with the theory of atomic rays. Indian philosophers of the Vaisasika school had written about atomic theory, speculated about heat being the cause of molecular change, and calculated the period of time taken by an atom to transverse its own space. Moreover, I discovered tablets indicating that Sumerians were somehow familiar with stars and planets, which, though I didn't realize it at the time, cannot be seen without a telescope. Even more interesting, in retrospect, were some of the mysterious items housed in the museum. It was not until modern times that I realized I'd been looking at models of glider planes, dry cell bat batteries from Babylon and Nineveh, and a giant panel portraying light bulbs attached with braided cables to a generator. It was the way that workmen had been able to paint deep within Egyptian tombs, where torches would have consumed all the oxygen and coated the paintings with soot. How was the secret of electricity lost for so many centuries? Had it been salvaged from before the flood only to be lost again? One thing was irrefutably clear. Solon's priest was correct. There had been scientifically advanced civilizations, and somehow their technology had contributed to their destruction. How advanced they were, I couldn't know, of course, until I witnessed the scientific discoveries of this century. Consider, in only 66 years we went from the Wright brothers' first flight to landing men on the moon. Before the bombing of Hiroshima, then, how could I have understood the meaning behind this description in the ancient text of the Mahabharata, 3,000 years old, of what must have been a nuclear weapon? It was a single projectile, charged with all the power of the universe. An incandescent column of smoke and flame, as bright as 10,000 suns, rose in all its splendor. It was an unknown weapon, an iron thunderbolt, a gigantic messenger of death, which reduced to ashes the entire race, of the Vrishnas and the Andakas. The corpses were so burned as to be unrecognizable. Their hair and nails fell out. Pottery broke without apparent cause, and the birds turned white. After a few hours, all foodstuffs were infected. To escape from this fire, the soldiers threw themselves in streams to wash themselves and their equipment. A shaft fatal as the rod of death, it measured three cubes and six feet. Endowed with the force of thousand-eyed Indra's thunder, it was destructive of all living creatures. Inauspicious winds began to blow. The sun seemed to turn around. The universe, scorched with heat, seemed to be in a fever. Elephants and other creatures on the land, scorched by the energy of that weapon, ran in flight. The very waters being heated, the creatures living in that element began to burn. Hostile warriors fell down like trees, burnt down in a raging fire. Huge elephants burnt by that weapon fell down on the earth, uttering fierce cries. Others scorched by the heat ran hither and yon, as in the midst of a forest conflagration, the steeds and the chariots also, burnt by the energy of that weapon, looked like the tops of trees burnt in a forest fire. A substance like fire has sprung into existence, even now blistering hills and rivers and trees. All kinds of herbs and grass in the mobile and immobile universe are being reduced to ashes, you cruel and wicked ones, intoxicated with pride, through that iron bolt you will become the exterminators of your race. On August 13, 1917, the district administrator for the Fatima area kidnapped the three children and locked them in his house for several days. 
He was a prominent freethinker and was sure that all this commotion about apparitions would go away if the children weren't there. Despite the absence of the children, more than 18,000 people gathered around the little oak tree. At noon, an explosive sound was heard and a flash of light was seen near the tree. The sun dimmed and a small white cloud formed around the tree. After a few minutes, it rose into the air and dissolved. Then the field was bathed in fantastic colors that tinted the clouds, the landscape, and the people. I spent more than a century studying in Alexandria, and I remember it now as one of my happiest times on earth. Those were my college days, when I learned something of philosophy, poetry, botany, geography, physics, astronomy, mathematics, and, and much of classical literature. It was still, as one ancient had called it, the bird coop of the muses. Most importantly, what I began to learn about my readings in Alexandria was the scale and cycle of things, that everything that would come to pass had happened before. Through my studies in astrology, I realized that when Christ spoke of the generation that would not pass away before he returned, he meant the age of Pisces, the Christian fish. I can still remember the, the moment when I first understood that it was for 2,000 years until the age of Aquarius that I was condemned to wander. After the destruction of the libraries, I chose a new direction, north to Europe. Eventually, as the remnants of Roman civilization broke down completely, I gave myself over to life in the monastery. Monasteries offered us a self-sufficient community in a world filled with social and political chaos. I spent much of my time there in the scriptorium, copying manuscripts, for that was the job I valued most. In part, it was in response to what had happened in Alexandria and with the fall of Rome, the recognition of how quickly knowledge could be lost. Also, while we were both in Alexandria, I had listened to Origen's arguments concerning the relationship of Christ and Logos. Stoicism and Platonism had taught me that Logos, Word, was the all-pervading force in the universe and an attribute shared by both God and humanity. Then there was the importance of Logos in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's no wonder I felt there was a mystical power inherent in words themselves and and that to transcribe them and illuminate them was a sacred act. Literally centuries of my life were spent doing such work. In part, I'm sure to make up for the loss I saw at Alexandria, but more for the meditation it granted me. As for the richness of the symbolism, consider just one example. The chrism, the sinographic emblem of Christ. It is based on the X and P, the first two letters of the word in Greek, but it's also based on the sign of the Roman banner from the time of Constantine, as well as the Egyptian ansated cross. That cross looks like the anchor, a common emblem of early Christianity signifying salvation and hope. But that cross is also known as the Ankh, and is particularly old. In Egyptian hieroglyphics, it stands for life and forms part of their words for health and happiness. The upper arm is curved to form a circle, and the hieroglyph's phonetic significance is a combination of the signs for activity and passivity and of a mixture of the two. Moreover, the shape of the cross symbolizes the circle of life spreading outwards from the origin and animating passive existence. It is also seen as a magic knot, binding together the elements of one individual. It also symbolizes destiny. In the macrocosm, it represents, with its circle, upright, and horizontal lines, the sun, the sky, and the earth. In the microcosm, the circle represents the human head, or logos, the horizontal arm, the arms, and the upright of the body. The point of crossing is the conjunction of opposites, the positive, the vertical, with the negative, the horizontal, the superior with the inferior, life with death. 
The symbolism of crucifixion is the essence of the antagonism which lies at the root of existence, and also the crossroads of possibilities and impossibilities, of construction and destruction. It's been suggested that the cross is the antithesis of the Ouroboros, the serpent or dragon denoting the primeval chaos which preceded the creation of the cosmos and the emergence of order. Therefore, there is a close relationship of the cross to the sword, since they are both wielded against the primordial monster. In geomancy, the backbone of the monster lives in the ridges and stone outcroppings of the earth. The cross is set upright in the earth, impales it, and renders it powerless. In Christian imagery, Mary clings to the foot of the cross, her heart pierced by the symbolic sword. Her heart is the rose pierced by a thorn. She is the vessel and the earth, catching the blood of her dying son in the chalice known as the Holy Grail. Mary, the Rose, and the Holy Grail would become for the Middle Ages the symbols that sparked a rebirth of spiritual consciousness. Finally, the cross is also an inversion of the Tree of Paradise, and like the Tree of Life, the cross becomes the axis of the world. So located, it becomes the bridge or ladder by means of which the soul climbs to God. On August 15, 1917, three days after the district administrator of Fatima kidnapped the children, he had to let them go. They'd been interrogated mercilessly, threatened with jail, and offered bribes to recant their story. When all else failed, the administrator isolated the children from one another and threatened to boil them in oil. Despite his efforts and his cruelty, they would not change their story, and so he let them go home. Four days later, the lady visited the children at a little hollow called Valinos. Again, witnesses saw a display of magnificent colors. They also reported what they called an incomparable and magnificent aroma which lingered on the tree branches above which she appeared to the children. Perhaps it was my conviction that words and symbols contain power that led me to the Kabbalah and the study of alchemy. People today don't understand what alchemy was about. It was not the search for some magical elixir or making gold from base metal that inspired us. It was to find a key to the interconnectedness of things. Alchemy rep represented the philosopher's attempt to bridge duality by transcending it to find an overriding third principle that united the opposites. Alchemy did not spring full-blown from the spiritual intellectual life of the monasteries and early universities. It was rooted in Gnosticism, Greek philosophy, and the Kabbalah. Michael de Nostradam, with whom I studied alchemy, understood this need for the power of the transcendent third very well. Thanks to his grandfathers, Nostradamus gained an early education in Plato, Plotinus, and Heraclitus. Heraclitus celebrated the hidden harmony of opposites, declared that God is a play of darkness and light, and said that the cycles of existence have no beginning or end. Nostradamus learned from the Kabbalah that humanity had fallen from union with God into amnesia. Reunion with God was gained through a study of the Tree of Life, a mystic path with ten levels of consciousness similar to the Kundalini chakras. During his travels in Sicily, Nostradamus talked with Sufi mystics and learned of mind-expanding herbs and other Sufi techniques to induce ecstatic trances. Nostradamus also drew on the findings of other alchemists, such as Paracelsus and Cornelius Agrippa, who believed that all so-called conscious knowledge is useless. Agrippa warned that people suffer from the false belief that they are separate from the power of nature. Alchemists had to be aware of this delusion before they could explore the magic which would reconnect them to the source of creation. But of all the philosophers, Nostradamus' favorite was Meister Eckhart, who said, the eye with which I see God sees me. My eye and God's eye is one eye, one seeing, one realizing, and one love. 
Nostradamus was sent to study medicine in the University of Montpelier in 1522. And though his first interest was in astrology, he became a potent force in battling the bubonic plague in southern France, primarily by advocating clean water, fresh air, and herbal medicines. But when his wife and two young children died of the plague in 1537, his patients and friends deserted him. Then church authorities charged him with heresy. He escaped, and for the next six years wandered through western and southern Europe, avoiding the church inquisitors. We traveled together for several years, and it was during this time that his remarkable powers of prophecy began to surface. The floods of 1544 in Provence triggered one of the worst bouts of plague of the century. Nostradamus did such good medical work during that time that his reputation was again secure. Nostradamus married again, settled in Solon, and became a model citizen. At night, however, he would lock himself in his attic study, consult his ephemeris, and begin his prophetic meditation. In describing some of his meditational technique, Nostradamus refers to a ritual practiced by Bronchus, a Delphic prophetess of ancient Greece, filled with steaming water scented with stimulating oils. He would chant a lilting incantation and take deep inhalations of the steam. Sometimes he would empty himself of thought by staring into a flame and slip into an ecstatic trance. He would then hear and see his visions in the bowl. As he himself wrote, I emptied my soul, brain and heart, of all care and attained a state of tranquility and stillness of mind which are prerequisites for predicting by means of the brass tripod. Human understanding, being intellectually created, cannot see hidden things unless aided by a voice coming from limbo by help of the thin flame, water or a thin flame from which comes a clouded vision of great events, sad and prodigious and calamitous adventures approaching in due time. It was in this manner that he worked on his master project, ten volumes of prophecy called The Centuries, which he completed in 1558. Each volume contained 100 quatrains, a thousand prophecies in all, describing in cryptic images the future events of the world. Concerning the 20th century, Nostradamus wrote, Before long everything will be organized. We await a very evil century. The lot of the masked and solitary ones, the clergy, greatly changed. Few will be found who wish to stay in their places. And of the last dozen years of this century, he predicted, the coming of the third Antichrist, the decline of communism, war in the Middle East, the U.S.-Soviet alliance in 1989, war and plague by late 1993. A horrible war which is being prepared in the West. The following year the pestilence will come, so very horrible that young nor old nor animal may survive. Blood, fire, mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and France. He predicted major earthquakes for the mid-1990s. First, earthquakes and tidal waves devastate India, then parts of Japan. There is a major earthquake in Italy, followed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Mount Pele erupts on Martinique, and earthquakes break the western United States. East Africa will be split into three pieces, and New York and Florida will be flooded. By 1995, the U.S.-Soviet alliance begins to break down. In 1996, the Arabs attack Europe. In 1997, New York City is destroyed. The sky will burn at 45 degrees, the latitude of New York City. Fire approaches the new city. In an instant, a huge, scattered flame leaps up. And then, in the year 1999 and seven months, the great king of terror will come from the sky. He will resurrect Genghis Khan. Before and after, war rules happily. When the seventh millennium has come, 
2000 AD, there will then be a hecatomb, a major sacrifice close to the millennium end, then those who enter the tomb will leave. In his epistle to Henry, so many evils by Satan's prince will be committed that almost the entire world will find itself undone and desolated. Before these events, many rare birds will cry in the air, now, now, and some time later will vanish. I had great hopes that with alchemy, the follies of past worlds could perhaps be avoided, that our minds and souls need not be torn apart from one another, that our growing knowledge of the mechanics of the universe did not have to spell our self-destruction. But I saw from Nostradamus' prophecies that these were fragile hopes, and that destruction at the appointed time through our own folly was probably unavoidable. When alchemy ultimately failed, the result was 400 years of an ever-increasing social schizophrenia technology outdistanced the inner knowledge of the spirit. On September 13, 1917, an estimated 30,000 people had gathered in the field to see if the Lady of Fatima would again appear to the children. At noon, the sun became so dark that stars were visible to the crowd. Many also witnessed a great ball of light come silently out of the east and settle on the treetop. At the same time, what looked like white flowers drifted from the sky and dissolved before reaching the ground. That day, the lady stressed to the children the vital importance of daily prayer, and especially the need for simplicity in their approach to prayer. When she was done, the crowd again witnessed the spectacular globe of light. It rose from the top of the little tree and disappeared on the eastern horizon. Rather than undergo the wars and tragedies that Nostradamus predicted were to happen in Europe over the next few centuries, I chose to leave France for the New World. Stories were sweeping Europe of primitive tribes living at one with nature in the northeastern Americas known as Acadia. There was also a tale of a fabulous golden city on the Penobscot River known as Norumbega. I traveled with a French trading vessel to Fort Pentagoet, commanded by the Baron de Castin at the mouth of the Penobscot. The stories of the city paved with gold proved not to be true, much to my disappointment, for I'd hoped there were people who might have remembered themselves as descendants from Atlantis. The Baron, who had married an Indian chief's daughter, gave me introduction to the Tarotine Indians of the area, but I soon found the climate too severe for my liking. I moved south and west over the next several years, living with different tribes along the way. In time, I settled with the Hopi, and in their company, I felt at home. Here's where we will end part two of The Wandering Jew. Before I tell you about next week's conclusion of the story, I wanted to briefly comment on the hazards of trying to predict a date for the end times. When his disciples asked Jesus that question, he told them that only God the Father had that information. Of course, that hasn't stopped people from predicting dates for the end. In 1844, for example, Pastor William Miller told his followers that Jesus would return on October 22, 1844. These so-called Millerites sold their worldly goods and gathered on rooftops that night waiting for Jesus. When Jesus didn't show up, it was dubbed the Great Disappointment. The sleeping prophet, Edgar Cayce, likewise predicted great earth changes in the years between 1958 and 1998, changes that never took place. Some thought the year 2000 would be the end time, while others thought the Mayan calendar was telling us it was going to happen in 2012. And then there was Pastor Harold Camping, the 21st century's version of William Miller. 
He told his large radio audience with great certainty that the second coming was going to occur on May 21st, 2011. Again, families sold or gave away all they owned, quit jobs, and waited for the end that didn't come. Now, here's a poem by Dr. Dr. Doggerel memorializing that event. Harold Camping called for rapture, and many faithful he did capture in his worldwide radio net. The only fact he did forget was that the rapture isn't yet, and maybe never. Place your bet. Oh, yes, indeed, the end may come. Our Earth's great pulse, once like a drum, is fading fast as we devour the forest cut, the water sour, the fish depleted, whales defeated, many species gone extinct. The earth, my friends, is on the brink. Jesus said he'd come again. He didn't tell Harold Camping when. Yet evidence is all around where once great gardens did abound. The bees have died. Insecticide has poisoned hives where bees once thrived, producing honey in abundance. Their swarms diminished. Their last sun dance is to die while we talk our salvation. Is Christian conscience on vacation? Harold Camping bought billboards and sent his minions to the hordes of people with more fear than faith, with tales of horror, like some wraith or evil spirit he did scare many souls who really care about God's love, and they surrendered, quit jobs, sold homes, their lives dismembered, wives left husbands, families lost. They're still counting up the cost. High winds, tornadoes level towns, and river floods break levee bounds, while radiation leaks apace from Japan's shores. The poisons race along the waves of sea and air. Volcanic Iceland, everywhere the ash is spewing while the sun shoots solar flares at everyone. Harold Camping once was headline news. But through earthly ruin, we now snooze. That is uh, Dr. Doggerel's take on Harold Camping. Next week's show continues with part three and tells what the wandering Jew learned from the Hopi. The final Marian apparitions at Fatima and the conclusion of this recording being made on death row as he looks forward to his own death. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to hear this show again or the two past shows, any of our past shows, as a matter of fact, just go to our website at nderadio.org and hit the Past Shows button. And for information about IANS, go to their website at iands.org. And be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.